It's August, 1993, and it feels like a revolution is afoot. Bill Clinton, the voice of a new generation, is President of the United States. He and Hillary are going to revolutionize healthcare in America. You're listening to new bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam on your CD Walkman. Politics and music are changing in new and surprising ways. Seeking relief from the craziness, you wander into a new comic shop. Time Traveler Comics in downtown Seattle has just opened and is close to your work. You haven't read comics in a few years, at least since the baby came, and your attention has shifted to more diapers and job advancement over mere entertainment. But all the hype about the new revolution in comics has brought you into the door during your lunch break. As you walk through the store, which seems bulging with new comics, with all kinds of shiny cover enhancements and slick, super modern art, you begin to realize you're feeling rootless, as if a new generation of comics has appeared since you joined the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles phenomenon. You realize you don't recognize some of your favorite, most iconic heroes. Superman, who you heard was dead, is somehow now alive again, and wearing a black suit, while a caption above all the Superman logos promotes something called the Reign of the Supermen. In the Batman comics, the standby hero, whose movies you love, is wearing some sort of strange armored suit and looks nothing like himself. Daredevil's covers proclaim his fall from grace. The Fantastic Four proclaim they are for no more. You see the glow-in-the-dark covers on Ghost Rider comics, a character you kind of remember from some back issues you once picked up and that your brother liked. Shiny metal covers on comics like The Avengers, holograms on the cover of X-Men comics, jump out at you and make you feel even more confused. But more than anything, you're confused by the vast panoply of new comics you find on the stands. What are comics like Spawn, Brigade, Warriors of Plasm, and Hardware? How do you even get started when there seem to be all these new publishers on the stands, with unfamiliar names like Vertigo, Ultraverse, Comics Greatest World, Milestone, Magnicom? What's a budding fan to do? That was the situation in 1993 as the American comic book market was booming. In the summer of 93, comic sales in America reached their highest level in history, with an astonishing 48.2 million copies sold by direct market distributor. That number was way up from the 10.6 million units sold in January 1990 and was even double what was sold one year previously. Let me say that again. Comic sales doubled in the space of one year. It was a crazy, heavy time for the comic book industry in America, but it wouldn't last. In this week's edition of Classic Comics Cavalcade, I'll talk about the comic book market in mid-1993, give you an idea why it boomed, and start to talk about why it busted even worse. And give you an idea what it felt like on the ground at the time. I'm Jason Sachs, author of The American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1990s. Thank you for downloading my podcast. I will, as we'll talk about in future podcasts, the years between 1990 and 1992 were wild ones for the American comic book industry. A group of rebels left their top-selling Marvel titles and launched their own company called Image Comics. Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, and Jim Lee all launched best-selling comics at Marvel between 1990 and 92. But when they moved to their own company, those image levels saw, rebel, saw sales well above and beyond what they might possibly could have expected. And in fact, the massive sales of the new image tiles had a major impact on the rest of the industry. Valiant Comics were the first to capitalize on that sales boom, presenting a consistent line of titles which emphasized 
great storytelling in a tight, comprehensive universe over Glitz and Flash. By mid-93, Valiant sales grew in astounding leaps and bounds. Where once an issue of Seller Man the Atom sold in the 12,000 copy range, by 1993, the debut of new series Bloodshot sold astonishingly well. Bloodshot number one reached Comic Shop the same day as the much-hyped Death of Superman in Superman 75. As Valiant writer and editor Kevin Van Hook remembers, at Forbidden Planet in New York City, there were two lines around the block, one for each mega-hit-selling book. That first issue sold an astounding 742,000 copies. And though that number was spurred in part by rabid and intense speculation, it also fed the belief that new lines of comics were where the future of the medium was going. To be fair, however, several months after Bloodshot number one hits the stands, Wizard Magazine reported that many retailers still had hundreds of copies of the $3.50 comic on hand. We talked about Valiant Comics in their previous podcast. Keep in mind that this was the beginning of the end for them, uh, as it really spurred on a uh, tremendous goal to build sales and get themselves bought out by a video game company to cash out for their venture capitalists to uh, make money off the comics lines. Um, and that was a big part of the story, too, that the VCs came in, saw sharp money in comics, started investing, and uh, saw it as a chance to kind of strip mine the companies. But that also brought in a feeling that classic heroes and villains had become passe. Readers seemed to want new heroes, grittier heroes who fit the new 90s ethos, which seemed to demand new heroes, new publishers, and new 90s attitudes. 1993 was the year that change really began to gain momentum. In many ways, it was the year of the new comic book line. First and foremost among those new lines was Image itself. When Image was founded in 1992, its first series were released through the auspices of small publisher Malibu Comics. Malibu just charged their expenses and a small markup per profit, but even there, Malibu earned a tremendous amount of cash. Flush with cash, after Image ended their business relationship, Malibu launched a new comic book imprint that was primarily writer-centric, whereas Image was artist-centric. The new line, which had the working title of Megaverse, was founded after a 1992 summit meeting in Scottsdale, Arizona. That event, held at a posh retreat, was attended by a dozen comics and science fiction authors, including Mike W. Barr, Steve Englehart, Steve Gerber, James Hudnall, Gerard Jones, and Len Trzinski as well as Nebula and Hugo Award-winning science fiction writer Larry Niven. At the end of those meetings, the writers had created a shared fictional universe that stretched, stressed characterization and storytelling and aimed to provide a fresh, innovative take on superheroes. As Engelhart commented at the time, we looked at the superhero genre with new eyes, identifying the conventions that had become stale with age. It's important to emphasize, too, that the, the Ultraverse was a writer-driven line, uh, Engelhart, Barr, Gerber, Hudnall, and the rest of the team had been writing comics for many years at the time. They were seen as solid, uh, stalwart professionals, not necessarily rock stars. And that was a lot of what was what the Ultraverse line aimed to achieve, was a set of characters with creators who were not mercurial, who would stay with them for a while, and who were pledged to help build the line. That line launched with a dozen new titles, which reflected the world outside our window. And though series like Solitaire, Mantra, Prime, Prototype, and The Strangers didn't last beyond 1995, another story for your future podcast, 
the line of titles attracted work by a slew of talented creators who did some of their finest work for the renamed Ultraverse. Other publishers also launched new imprints in 1993. In fact, Malibu itself launched Rocket Comics to tell the life stories of some of the most prominent musicians of the time. Harvey Comics delivered a line confusingly called Ultra Comics, which featured comics starring the Japanese superhero Ultraman. Neil Adams Continuity Associates renewed their publishing in 1993 with a strange crossover called Death Watch 2000, in which the final chapter never even saw print. For those of us who love 90s comics, it's hard to find anything more 90s than a crossover that never saw its final chapter. But other publishers plunged ahead with their own lines in 1993. Dark Horse Comics followed the same idea of the Ultraverse, releasing a line called Comics Greatest World in weekly 16-page $1 comics, which introduced characters you may know, such as Ghost, XN, Barbed Wire, later to be infamously uh, made into a movie, along with more obscure heroes like The Machine, Wolfgang, and Pit bulls. Stay away from the pit bulls. They're dangerous. Jim Shooter, who was the star of one of our previous podcasts, launched his new line of, here, of comics in 1993 as well. Defiant was the name of the company, and it was an odd company. Bankrolled by a card company and continually battling negative press and perceptions, as well as backbiting from Shooter's former employers at Marvel's, Defiant published some compelling comics, which it seemed dead set on pushing readers away from. For example, the first issue of their premiere series, called Plasm, was published first as a trading card set before moving into regular monthly publishing. That idea was weird enough, but it backfired on Defiant because they somehow didn't manage to print enough copies of the binder that held the cards. Defiant's worth a podcast episode all their own, but they represent some of the best and worst trends of the 90s. One of the most important new hero lines to debut in 93 was Milestone Comics. Milestone was unique for several reasons. One is that it was solicited and distributed by DC Comics, which provided the company a safe haven and cash flow its competitors envied. Another was that it was brought to DC by a consortium of four African-American businessmen. Derek T. Dingle was managing editor of Black Enterprise Magazine. Dwayne McDuffie, who was a longtime comic book writer who co-created Marvel's much-loved Damage Control, and who years later would write both Fantastic Four and Black Panther. Michael Davis, seasoned editor and comic book packager, and Dennis Cowan, veteran artist who had been drawing for Marvel and DC for more than a decade. Maybe most importantly, the Milestone line was created to fill a gap in the comic book market. Milestone was devoted to heroes of races seldom presented in comics. One of their best-known heroes, Static, was often described as an African-American Spider-Man. That line also included pastiches of Iron Man and Superman. Ended up lasting through most of the 1990s, and Milestone also deserves a podcast of its own. But maybe the most important new line of 1993 was Vertigo Comics, published by DC. Whereas many of the other new comics lines were primarily devoted to exciting fans of superhero comics, Vertigo went a different direction. Vertigo was for adults, or at least older teens, and their initial offerings showed that. Classic series Sandman, Animal Man, Hellblazer, and Doom Patrol were some of the most avant-garde books in all of comics. Those books generated critical acclaim and older, often college-age audience that stayed away from the superhero-type books DC published in the rest of their line. Vertigo was a calculated risk that paid off spectacularly. 
editor Karen Berger added a new stack of titles to the Vertigo line. Those new titles include the much-acclaimed Shades of Changing Man, as well as the brilliant crime drama Sandman Mystery Theater, the poetic The Last One, and the surreal Kid Eternity. Better than nearly every other line of comics, better than Marvel's Razor line or Epic's Heavy Hitters, or even Last Gas Comics' Kids line Magnicom, Berger's collection of comics represented the state of the art for a certain corner of comics in the 1990s. Though Valiant, Image, Ultraverse, and their peers seemed to point to a new era of comics in the 90s, instead Vertigo showed the direction comics could grow. Sophisticated, strange, sweet, and smart, Vertigo fulfilled a dream for many comic readers who saw reflections of a much more true-life depiction of their own complicated lives. Meanwhile, as all this newness happened in the industry in 1993, DC Comics was becoming increasingly scared. 1993 brought radical changes to Batman and Green Lantern and new shocks in the world of Superman. We'll get to that story in the next podcast. What comics would you buy in that mythical Time Traveler Comics shop in 1993? Honestly, folks, as a writer of my book, I'd probably buy them all. They're all great in their own weird, wacky, mid-90s greatness. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out my new book, The American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1990s, published by Tomorrow's and available through Amazon.com, Tomorrow's.com, or anywhere you can find books. Thanks. Oh, thank you.